As we have mentioned several times already in previous lessons, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation serve as the introduction or the prologue of the third and the final major section of the book. The third section concerns the hereafter things. Remember that comes from our uh, chief verse for the outline of the book, which is Revelation 1.19. Christ said to write about the hereafter things. And that concerns the future program of Jesus Christ. The events, in other words, which will follow the church age, which we looked at in detail last year, chapters 2 and 3. And therefore, these events are yet future from our own time in history, right? Because we are still in the church age. These are events of the yet future program of Jesus Christ are given to us in chapters 4 all the way to the end of the book, I mean 6, excuse me, 6 to 22. So chapters 4 and 5 are the prologue to the yet future things. They are key chapters to understanding the purpose of all of the future events in the rest of the book of Revelation. Now in chapter 5, which we are going to begin to look at today, and Lord willing, we will finish next week, the emphasis switches from that of God as creator, that was the emphasis of chapter 4, God as creator, to now the emphasis will be God as redeemer. In chapter 4, God the Father is the focus of the praise that went on in that beautiful chapter. Now in chapter 5, God the Son will be the focus of praise. His work of redemption is emphasized through his portrayal in this chapter as a slain lamb. The fact that he has redeemed men by his own blood. Remember, we looked at that when we looked at verse 9 of this chapter already, when we were trying to figure out who the 24 elders were. The Redeemer's worthiness to take a very, very important document from the right hand of the occupant of the throne, who is, of course, God the Father, is something else that is emphasized in this chapter. Now, he is worthy, this slain lamb is worthy to take this document, to break open its seven seals, to unroll it, and the reason, and then to read it. And the reason that he is worthy to do this is because of his work of redemption. Now, as we come to chapter 5, the scene itself doesn't really change. We are still in heaven. John is still before the throne room of heaven. The throne and the occupant of the throne are still there. In other words, God. The rainbow, you know, the green emerald rainbow around the throne is still there. The four living creatures are still there. The seven lamps of fire burning are still there. Who did they represent? Come on. Right, the Holy Spirit. And the four and twenty elders are still there. However, John's attention is now drawn from the throne. Remember, that's what he was looking at. Now he changes his emphasis from the throne to a particular object in God's right hand. And that object, and of course its recipient, not only become the subject of chapter 5, but it becomes the vital key to understanding the entire rest of the book of Revelation. I want you to understand that so you understand why I'm going to be talking so much about this document this morning and maybe getting a little tedious about it, but it's very vital to understand what this document is. The object in God's right hand is, according to the King James, called a what? A book in verse 1. Uh, it's called a book. However, we know that back in John's day and in Old Testament days, they didn't have books like we have books, you know, with hardcover or paperback cover or leather-covered binders like, like we know of books. What did they have instead? They had a, a scroll such as this. There were. Um, this was very convenient that they had a a table set up over here for Jewish missionaries and happened to have a little scroll for my lesson this morning. Thank you for that. <laughs> I can't quite open it because I've got a rubber band around it, but it was, um, it consisted of rolled parchment. This just happens to be paper, but rolled parchment or sheepskin, which was attached to two poles, as you see here, on either end. 
and then men could write on that sheepskin or that parchment, and they could write on the front side of it or the inside of it. It is written. This one has writing on it. Or they could also write on the back side. This particular scroll in God's right hand has writing on the inside, and it has writing on the back side. So unlike this one, it has writing on both sides. Now, the major drama of chapter 5 is centered then on this very, very significant scroll and on finding someone who is worthy to take it from God's right hand to break open its seven seals. It is sealed with seven different seals and then unroll it and read it. John, the Apostle John, who is the one watching all of this going on in heaven, was moved to the very core of his soul when the search for a worthy individual, one who could take that scroll from God's right hand, when that search to find somebody worthy was in vain. No one could be found. Or at least he thought no one could be found until an elder, and I think it's very interesting that it was an elder who spoke to him in um, verse 5 of chapter 5 and pointed out to John the one who is qualified and therefore able to take the scroll, open it up, loose its seals, and in verse, uh, let's see, what verse is it? 7. Isn't that appropriate? In verse 7, this one comes forward, and he does indeed take the book from God's right hand. And the amazing thing is that God allowed him to do so. So we know he is indeed worthy. He not only took it, God permitted him to take it. And when that momentous event occurred, great doxologies of praise just broke forth from everybody. First of all, from the throng around the throne in verses 9 and 10. Then praise broke out from all of the angels of heaven. It's, uh, it says that there were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. All of the heavenly angels broke out in praise. And then likewise, every single creature in existence everywhere broke out in praise in verse 13. So this entire scene here in chapter 5, this is a synopsis of what the chapter is all about. This entire scene demonstrates the extreme importance of that, what? That scroll in God's right hand. In fact, the sealed scroll is what makes chapters 4 and 5 the key chapters to understanding the purpose for the rest of the book of Revelation. Therefore, the identification of this sealed scroll is very important for us to determine. Without understanding what this document represents, we would fail to truly understand the purpose for the future events of chapters 6 to 22. Whatever this scroll is, it relates to the fact that the holy, eternal creator God, the unique God who created the universe... For his own purpose, according to his own sovereign will, as we learned back in chapter 4, verse 11. And uh, it relates to that, and that he alone has the right to rule. And his right to rule includes his right to use his power in order to crush those enemies of his who would oppose his rule. So it relates to that, the scroll relates to that, because that's what we talked about in chapter 4. Furthermore, the identification of the scroll also somehow or another relates to the importance of the Redeemer that we see in chapter 5, the standing slain lamb and to his redemptive work, as well as to the fact that this Redeemer alone in all of the universe is worthy to take the scroll from God's right hand to break its seals, to open it up, and then to read it and then to exercise his own divine power over creation. So this scroll, you see, is significantly tied into God's program of redemption for the world, for the whole world. Now, although our outline contains six parts, which have already been absorbed into the transparency paper, but I think you can see them, 
We will be looking at the scroll, the search, the sorrow, the slain lamb, the song of redemption, and the sevenfold praise. We have six parts to the outline, but as I already told you today, we're only going to get to the first part as we look at the scroll in verse 1. Now, to do this, it's going to be necessary for us to temporarily remove our thoughts from the heavenly scene, you know, to remove seeing things right now through John's eyes up there in heaven, and we're going to instead need to examine several very important principles which were involved in God's land redemption program for Israel as it was stated in the Mosaic Law. Now, once we have considered this, we will then consider the identification of the sealed scroll of Revelation chapter 5, and we'll see how God's land redemption program for Israel relates to the sealed scroll in God's right hand and God's redemptive program for the entire world. So you see, what he did for Israel is what parallels what he is doing with the world. So let's begin by looking at the scroll, chapter 5, verse 1. John says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, as I stated in our introduction, John's focus, as the 24 elders were, you know, remember, upon their faces, they had come down off of their thrones, they were on their faces, worshiping and praising the Lord God Creator. John's attention was now drawn to this book or this scroll in the right hand of the one who sat upon the throne, God the Father. Notice that verse 1 begins with the word what? And. Ke, K-A-I in the Greek. And that tells us that this is a continuing account of everything that has already occurred in chapter 4. As a matter of fact, if you look all the way through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and look at the first word of almost every single verse, you will see that that word is used over and over and almost every single verse starts with the word and. So this is one continual scene one continual story. Chapters 4 and 5 are joined together. Now, as John's gaze is fixed upon this scroll, he notes that it has writing both on the inside of it and on the outside or the backside. And he notices that it is sealed with how many seals? Seven seals. Now, before we move on to learn about the strong angel We won't get to look at him until next week. Of verse 2, there's a strong angel who comes along, and he asks a tremendously important question. He He says, who is worthy to take the scroll out of God's hand and to break open its seals? Before we look at all that, as I said, we need to determine what this scroll is and why it does play such an extremely important Uh, place in God's redemptive program for the world. And to do this, we're going to need to consider some important biblical principles involved, as I said, in God's land redemptive program for Israel. Israel. Now, the most important principle in God's redemptive land program for Israel was the fact that the land of Israel belonged to him. He said this very simply and very clearly, very straightforwardly in Leviticus 25, 23. Talking about Israel, he said, the land is mine. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Who does the land of Israel belong to? Does it belong to the the Arabs? Does it belong to the Jews? Who does it really, really belong to? It belongs to God. This is called the principle of divine ownership. God is the ultimate owner of Israel. As her ultimate owner, he possesses ultimate power over the land. He, God, is Israel's true king. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 43, 15 states that fact. It says, I am the Lord, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. So God alone has the right to rule Israel for his own benefit 
in accordance with his own perfect and sovereign will. Now, another critical biblical principle involved in God's land redemptive program for Israel is what we will call the principle of tenant possession. According to a number of the scriptures, such as Genesis 13, 15, for just to give you one, God gave his land to the people of Israel to possess as an inheritance forever. However, in spite of this truth, they were not free to think of themselves as the sole owners and authorities over their land. Since God is the ultimate owner, they were merely responsible to administer the land as his representatives. In other words, they were to rule over the land for his benefit and for his glory in accordance with his will and his sovereign purpose and also in obedience to his commandments. And his commandments were known to them because he gave them his commandments very clearly and in in much detail in the Mosaic Law. So to state this little arrangement in words that we can understand a little bit better, God is the landlord of Israel. The land belongs to him and to him alone, and the Israelites were his tenants. So every Israelite was to regard himself as a proprietor of a piece of land which belonged really, ultimately, to God. He was the king of Israel, and the people were his subjects. They were, we could say, his feudal tenants. In fact, in one of the very most important chapters, which deals with uh, God's ultimate ownership of the land of Israel, which is Leviticus chapter 25. You'll be looking at that in your homework, Leviticus chapter 25. In that chapter, God says this. He says, For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants, whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt and put them on his land, you see, to be his feudal tenants, to be his servants, to administer the land according to his will. Now, a third principle in God's redemptive program for the land of Israel is the principle of not losing tenant possession forever. The principle of not losing tenant possession forever. Because of the fact that God is the ultimate owner of the land of Israel, and since the Israelites were merely the tenant administrators of his land, they were strictly forbidden to sell the land forever. Is it right for Israel to be selling their land today or to be giving any of it away? No, it is not biblically right for them to be doing that. It's not, you know, it's not an issue that we even need to give our opinions on. The Bible clearly states this. God said in Leviticus 25, verse 23, the land shall not be sold forever. What do you think he means by forever? Including the 20th century? Yes, forever. For the land is mine, he says. For ye, talking to the Israelites, are strangers and sojourners. You know, they're just passing through that land. That land belongs to him. An individual Israelite received his portion of land by way of inheritance. You know, it went back to the days of Jacob and his 12 sons and who got what, which tribe got which land. There was no other legal method that existed whereby a Jewish person, an Israelite, might come into permanent possession of property in Israel. Neither was there any legal method whereby he might sell or dispose of property except to apportion it to his heirs, to his legal heirs. So this prohibition of permanent sale of land was built upon the principle that the land did not actually, uh, was not actually possessed by the tenant possessor, I mean the tenant administrator. It was God's land. The land tenant couldn't sell, you see, what he didn't really own. God owned it, so the tenant possessor could never sell it. 
Now, if a situation arose in which an Israelite, you know, perhaps through mismanagement or a bad weather so that he had bad crops um, and, or perhaps just through poverty, whatever the circumstances might have been, to cause him to become so poor that the Israelite needed to sell a portion of his land or perhaps all of his land over which he had tenant possession, what he would do is he would not sell the ownership of the land. Instead, he was permitted to sell the tenant possession or administration of that particular portion of land. Yet even in that, even in that, he could only sell the tenant right or the tenant possession for a limited period of time. What this meant was that the land was only sold in the sense that the use of the land was surrendered for a certain number of years, always less than 50. All right? You'll, I'll talk about that in one second. So we could call this, what would we kind of call this today, today's terminology? A, right, exactly. This was kind of a lease of the land. <clears throat> God made a very special provision in the year of Jubilee which prevented the sale of tenant possession of land in Israel from ever, ever becoming a permanent thing. What was the year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee occurred every 50th year. It was the year which followed the seventh sabbatical year. You see, what, what they were supposed to do, God gave Israel a command that she was to work her land for six years. She could, you know, plow up the fields, sow the crops, reap the harvest for six years. She could prune her vineyards, reap the vines for six years. But every seventh year, she was to give the land a rest. That was called the law of the sabbatical year. It follows right along with him creating earth in six days and resting on the seventh. And I thought it was very interesting and do think it is very interesting that because God does things so um, consistently that mankind has been on earth working the earth for how many years? Six thousand years, which will end the close of this century. And what does he want the land to do on the seventh year or the seventh millennial rest? And so wouldn't it be a perfect time for us to have the millennial kingdom after this century to go into the seventh millennium and have it be the time of rest? It's a thought to think on, isn't it? So anyway, they were to uh, do this cycle for seven times course everything God does is in sevens they were to let the land rest six years I mean work it six years and then let it rest on the seventh and they were to do that for seven cycles which would be a total of what how many years 49 seven times seven is 49 then they would celebrate after that the year of jubilee the 50th year you can read all about this again in Leviticus chapter 25 now one of the primary purposes for this God-ordained jubilee year was to prevent any permanent changes in the ownership of land. In the jubilee year, the land automatically returned to the original tenant possessor or to his heir. So automatically, no matter who had it, during the 50 years, it would at the 50th, it would automatically go back to the original tenant or his heir. Now, this law kept the Israelites constantly aware of the fact that they were merely the tenants of the land, which ultimately belonged to God. Now, another important principle involved not losing tenant possession to an individual outside of the original tenant's Tribe. Remember, now there were 12 tribes in Israel. So this was the principle of not losing the possession of land to another tribe. 
had to stay in the same tribal family. In Numbers 36, verse 9, God said this. He said, Neither shall the inheritance be transferred from one tribe to another tribe, but every one of the tribes of the children of Israel shall keep to himself his own inheritance. In Numbers 27, verses 8 to 11, one of the commandments that God gave in order to make sure that this principle stayed in effect, that the land was not passed to another tribe, one of the commandments he gave was that when a man died, his tenant possession could only be given to a family member. And yet, this commandment alone would not have completely solved the problem of tenant possession being passed to another tribe. For example, let's say a man had no male heirs. In other words, let's say he had no sons. And this situation did arise in, um, I believe it's talked about in Numbers chapter 36. So that the land was then given to his daughter, one of his daughters, or all of his daughters. And let's say one of those daughters, and this could very well happen, would marry a man outside of her own tribe. Then her children, you see, would inherit her tenant possession. But because her children, their children, were always considered to belong to the tribe of the father rather than to the tribe of the mother, this would mean that the inherited tenant possession, which originally belonged to the mother's tribe, would then pass to the property of the father's tribe. So... God thinks of everything. In order to prevent a situation like this from happening, God gave a further land regulation. And he said that brotherless daughters, brotherless daughters, this would be any of you who don't have brothers, this would have applied to you. They were only permitted to marry a man from within their own tribe. So God was very specific he was very serious about all this, wasn't he? He's very specific in making sure that every single piece of ground remained forever in the tribe to which he originally apportioned it. Now, another principle is the principle of redemption. This is an important one. This principle made it possible for an Israelite who had sold his tenant possession or a portion of it due to perhaps, let's say, you know, poverty. This made it possible for him to redeem that land back at any point in time prior to the year of Jubilee if his circumstances had changed so that he now had the price of redemption to buy back the tenant possession of his land. Furthermore, even if he didn't have the redemption price to buy back his own tenant possession of land before the year of Jubilee, his nearest kinsman, his nearest relative also had the right as well as the responsibility to redeem the land back for his relative before the year of Jubilee, if he possibly could do so. Again, all of this is in Leviticus chapter 25. Now, this right of redemption therefore, which included the responsibility of the kinsman, the relative, was yet another means that God introduced in order to keep tenancy of land within the tribe to which it originally belonged. Now, if a kinsman redeemer paid the redemption price in order to redeem his relative's land, he didn't, did not, return that land to his relative. That wouldn't be too fair, would it? He didn't return it until the year of Jubilee. After all, he's the one who forked out the money to redeem the land for his relative, so he was able to keep that land as tenant possessor and to administrate it for his own purposes. You know, perhaps he wanted to grow a crop on it. He was able to keep it until the year of Jubilee. Then, of course, it would go back to his relative's heir. So the land, when it was redeemed by a kinsman, did not return to the hands of the one who had sold his tenant rights 
until the year of the Jubilee. Now, we have an example of land redemption through a kinsman redeemer in the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 32, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to, we find that Jeremiah exercised the right of redemption for his cousin's land. You know, Jeremiah had been warning the people of Israel for many, many years. Nobody ever listened. Not one person listened to him. But yet he kept on warning the people that God was going to come and take them into captivity if they did not repent and turn from their sins. They had many sins. They had turned to other gods, and they had done many sins. But one of their sins, and this is very interesting, one of their sins, one of Israel's sins, was her neglect to honor the sabbatical year of rest for the land. Instead of allowing the land, now who did the land belong to? God. And what did God want them to do with the land? To work it for six years and let it rest on the seventh year. Well, instead of obeying God and allowing the land to rest every seventh year, the Israelites got very selfish. And they wanted to plant their crops and pluck their grapes and and just work the land all the time, right through the sabbatical years. So they had been disobeying God in this respect for a total of 490 years. He keeps track. He keeps good records. They had not kept the sabbatical rest for 490 years. Now, if you take 490 and divide it by 7, because every seventh year that land should have rested, what do you get? You mathematicians, 70. So you see what God had to do in order to get the rest that he had commanded for his own land, he had to remove the disobedient Israelites off of that land for 70 years. And that's exactly what he did. And he said that this is what he would do if they disobeyed him. He told them, he warned them about it, they did it anyway. So he sent King Nebuchadnezzar over from Babylon to take the people into captivity in another land, just so he could let his own land rest. However, through this same prophet, God promised that Israel's removal from the land would only be for 70 years. As a matter of fact, Daniel who was taken in the captivity when he was a young lad of about 14, read Jeremiah and read that Jeremiah predicted that the captivity would only be for 70 years, and he calculated how many years he'd already been in Babylon. It was 67 at that time. So he started praying that God would do what he promised he would do and that he would remove them from the land. And that's when God sent the wonderful answer, which gives us a 70 weeks prophecy. When Daniel prayed in accordance with God's will, it's so important to know what God's will is. It's so important to know what God's word is so that we can pray in accordance with his will and have our answers, prayer, uh, our prayers answered, just like Daniel did. Amazing 70 weeks prophecy was a result of Daniel reading Jeremiah and seeing God's word. Well, anyway, did you know that God is also very precise? You know how precise he is in that 70 weeks prophecy where he predicts the very day that the Messiah will officially present himself to the nation of Israel. Well, he was also very precise when he told the people that he would remove them for 70 years because the first captivity, there were three times that Nebuchadnezzar came over from Babylon and took Israelites captive. The first captivity was in 605 B.C., And that is when he took Daniel and all the other young men of nobility and royalty into Babylon so that he could brainwash them. That was in 605 B.C. Well, do you know that the first return of the Jews back to the land from Babylon back to Judah occurred in 535 B.C. under the leadership of Zerubbabel? Now, if you subtract those two, now remember this is B.C., not A.D. If you subtract them, how many years were they in captivity off of the land in Babylon? 
exactly 70 years. Isn't it amazing? God's Word is so incredible. It's so wonderful. And that's why you should never doubt His Word. You should never doubt when He says He's going to save you, that He's going to save you. Because He will save you. His Word is absolute. It's concrete. You know, when I read stuff like that, that's why I love prophecy so much. I know that even when we get into these chapters, starting with chapter 6, and we talk about some really, really weird things, that I know God's going to fulfill them. I don't have to speculate and, and, and think, well, maybe he won't really do that. I know he'll do it. He's always kept his word. That's why it's important to understand that Revelation is going to be fulfilled just as, exactly as he has fulfilled already all his other prophecies. Well, to prove that the Israelites would indeed return, that he would keep his promise, God told Jeremiah to do a very, very strange thing. Jeremiah's cousin, a man named Hanamel, had a piece of property which he knew was totally worthless to him because by this point in time, King Nebuchadnezzar was already besieging Jerusalem. He was just right outside of Jerusalem. So Hanamel knew that he would never be able to get any, any more use out of his land. So he figured he might as well try to sell it to his nearest kinsman. And he probably thought Jeremiah was pretty much of a fool anyway. So he went to Jeremiah, and he offered to sell him tenant possession of his land. Well, in the meantime, God had told Jeremiah that his cousin would do this, that he would come and offer to sell his tenant possession of his land to him. And God told Jeremiah to go ahead and pay the redemption price for that land, which happened to be in the amount of 17 shekels of silver. And then, after Jeremiah paid his cousin for the land, Jeremiah himself told us in uh, chapter 32, verses 9 to 12, what he did. He said, um, let me look that up. Jeremiah 32, starting at verse um, 9. He said, And I bought the field of Hanamel, my uncle's son, that was in Anathoth, and weighed him the money, even 17 shekels of silver. And I subscribed, or that means he um, signed the evidence. He signed the document and sealed it and took witnesses and weighed him the money in the balances. So I took the evidence of the purchase. He took the, the deed, the document, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom. See, there was one document that was sealed and that which was open. There were two documents that uh, gave witness to this transaction of him pur purchasing or paying the redemptive price for his cousin's land. Two documents. One was sealed and the other was left open. And he says he gave the evidence or the document of the purchase unto Baruch, the son of Neriah, that was Jeremiah's secretary, um, in the sight of Hannah Mel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses that subscribed the book of the purchase. What that means is that there were witnesses there to what was going on, and they signed their names to the back side of that document. And it says they did this before all the Jews that sat in the court of the prison. The really strange thing about all of this is not only that Jeremiah knew King Nebuchadnezzar was about to remove the, the people off of the land of Israel, and therefore he would never himself really get to benefit from that land he had just redeemed, but the other really strange thing is that Jeremiah himself was in prison at this point in time. He was in the prison of the king of Judah. So, of course, he would never, ever be able to really use this land. He never himself did use it. He had no way he could possibly benefit from it. He would, that God would indeed return them to his land. You see, he would not have, have told his godly, obedient servant, Jeremiah, to purchase something which was going to be usurped forever by foreigners. The piece of land would be passed to Jeremiah's legal heirs. 
after the 70 years, after they returned. So God did that to demonstrate that he would keep his promises. Now, we did note that there were two copies of the deed of purchase. Um, And these deeds were in the form, of course, again, not of books, but in the form of what? My little example. They were in the form of scrolls. Jeremiah signed and then sealed shut one copy of the scroll deed, and then he had witnesses sign it on the outside. That document was sealed so that no one could change its contents. So the seal not only authenticated a document, you know, most people had some kind of a signet ring that they would press into wax and seal it so that the uh, envelope, not the envelope, the scroll couldn't be open. I was thinking of doing it on an envelope. And also, it not only authenticated that they were the, the one who had sealed it, but it also was a means of security because you'd know when the seal had been broken. Sealed documents could only be opened by authorized persons. Well, the second copy of that transaction, the second scroll, was left unsealed. And this was so that it could be read by anyone who desired to know who had the right of tenant possession for a particular piece of land. So the unsealed scroll was vulnerable to tampering. It was vulnerable to change by anyone who might want to, you know, tamper with it when maybe nobody was looking and who would want to deny tenant possession to the rightful person. So there was always the possibility that someone could um, could challenge the reliability of the unsealed document. They could come along and say, well, I know it says that Jeremiah owns that land, but how do we know somebody hasn't tampered with it? How do we know somebody didn't use some whiteout and change the name there? So that that could, the unsealed document could always be challenged. That's why it was necessary to have the sealed document as irrefutable evidence as to who had the right to the tenant possession of the land. The sealing of the document guaranteed that the terms had not been changed or tampered with. Now the chances, the chances of someone challenging a right of tenant possession would be particularly strong in cases where a kinsman redeemer, such as Jeremiah, did not take immediate possession of that land for a long period of time, you know, after he had paid the redemption price. Perhaps, as in the case of Jeremiah, because he was removed from the land for many years. Actually, he died, they say, tradition says he died in Egypt. He didn't get carried to Babylon. So it would be in just such a situation as that, that the kinsman redeemer would request that the sealed scroll deed be opened and that it would be read as irrefutable evidence of his right of tenant possession of the land. There were actually two responsibilities of the kinsman redeemer. First of all, he was to pay the redemption price for the land. And secondly, he was to take possession of the land and to exercise administrative control over it. In situations where he had not taken immediate possession of the land for a long time, he would have to evict. He would have to evict any usurpers on the land before he could actually take possession of the land. Sometimes the usurpers would resist removal from the land, and so their eviction would require the use of force by the kinsman redeemer. So two things were necessary for the redemption of the forfeited inheritance— Those two things were price and power. If the kinsman redeemer merely paid the redemption price for the land, but he had no power to take possession of it and remove the usurpers off of his land, then the payment was in vain, right? On the other hand, if he had the power to remove those usurpers, 
of his land, but he had not paid the redemption price, then his action was not righteous. His action would be illegal. So those then, I know that's been a little bit tedious for you, but those are the land, the principles for land redemption for Israel as given by God in his word. This has been a study from the Mosaic law. It's in the scripture. You'll be looking it up and see that what I've been telling you is actually in the scripture. So now let's turn to consider these principles in light of the sealed scroll of Revelation chapter 5, the scroll which John's attention was so totally focused on. Now I'm going to be giving you all these parallels, all right? As the land of Israel belonged to whom? To God, so also does the entire world belong to God and everything on the world. Psalm 24, verse 1 tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is permanently God's by right of his creation of it. He is its owner. He is its sovereign king. Just as the Lord God gave the land of Israel to the Israelites to possess as its inheritance forever, so did God give the earth to mankind to possess as an inheritance forever. The earth and all the things on the earth were originally given by God himself to Adam and to Adam's posterity for a possession. And the record of that transaction is given to us in the first pages of our Bible, in the first pages of the book of Genesis. However, even though God gave the earth to mankind, which we could call Adam's tribe, or all of Adam's tribe, man was not free to think of himself as the sole owner and authority of the earth. Since God is the ultimate owner and authority over the earth, mankind was merely responsible to serve God as his representative. Man was to administer God's rule on the earth for man's, uh, for God's benefit in accordance with God's purpose and in obedience to God's commandments. God is the landlord, and men are merely the tenant possessors of earth. Also, just as the Israelites were strictly forbidden to lose tenant possession of the pieces of land which were their, which were their inheritance, it was wrong for mankind also to forfeit his tenant possession of the earth which was his inheritance. Mankind was merely the administrator of the earth, which belonged to God. Man was not the ultimate owner of the earth, and therefore he did not have any right or any authority to forfeit his tenant possession and an, an administration of the land to anyone else, particularly someone outside of his own tribe. And yet this is exactly what mankind in Adam did, right? Mankind forfeited his tenant possession of the earth to Satan because he followed Satan's rebellion against God. As a result of getting the first man, Adam, to join in his revolt against God, Satan usurped tenant possession of the earth away from its original tenant, man. And ever since, Satan has been exercising administrative control over this world system, which is a system in continuous rebellion against God. Now, we know that this is true because Satan had the authority to offer the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights? Satan had the authority to offer the Lord Jesus the power and the glory of all the kingdoms of the earth. You can read about it in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And he even stated, Satan stated to the Lord that this had been, that um, the power and the glories of the, all the kingdoms of earth had been delivered to him by someone else. 
You can read that in Luke 4, verses 5 and 6. Now, who was that someone else who had delivered the kingdoms of earth over to him, to Satan? That someone was Adam. The Lord Jesus didn't refute Satan's statement, did he? He didn't deny that Satan had the authority to offer him all of the kingdoms of the earth. Although, of course, the Lord Jesus did refuse that wicked offer which was Satan's way of tempting the Lord to gain possession of the earth without having to go to the cross. And succumbing to that temptation would have disqualified the Lord as our Redeemer because then he would have sinned against God's will. God's will was for him to go to the cross. He would have sinned against God's will, and therefore he would have joined Satan in his rebellion against God. Furthermore, we know that Satan is the usurping tenant possessor of the world because Satan, I mean, because Christ himself referred to Satan as the prince of this what? Of this world. And Paul referred to him as the God of this age, of course, with a small g. So we have scriptural authority for saying that earth is a forfeited or an alienated inheritance. The domain domain of earth has lapsed into the hands of the enemy usurper. It is now in the hands of Satan. It went from a theocracy to a satanocracy, which is what we live in today, a world ruled by Satan. Due to mankind's forfeiture of his God-given tenant possession of the world to Satan... God placed all of nature under a curse, Genesis chapter 3. As a result, all of creation has been made subject to corruption and to vanity and to groaning. The earth is groaning. Creation is groaning and travailing in pain. Creation groans and longs for the day when it will be redeemed and released from this curse. I think the wind is blowing on my transparencies. They want to do a dance over here. Well, parallel to the fact that a Jew was strictly forbidden to lose his tenant possession to someone outside of his own tribe, right? Couldn't be transferred to another tribe, is the fact that it was wrong for mankind to forfeit his tenant inheritance to a being outside of mankind. And again, yet that is exactly what man did when he um, forfeited his inheritance to Satan, because Satan is not a man, is he? He is a being outside of mankind. He is of another tribe. He is an angelic creature. He's a fallen angelic creature. The good news, however, is that just as loss of tenant inheritance by a Jew, by an Israelite, was only temporary thanks to God's provisions, such as the provision of the year of Jubilee, so also mankind's loss of tenant possession of earth to Satan is also only, thank the Lord, temporary. Parallel to God's program for Israel, through which a kinsman redeemer could redeem a tenant possession of property that had been lost by his relative, is the wonderful fact that God has also established, through through a kinsman redeemer of mankind, a redemptive plan so that man, again, can have earth back from Satan. Just as the Israelite redeemer had to be a kinsman, he had to be a relative from the same tribe as the person who lost the tenant possession. So the redeemer of mankind, the redeemer of earth, had to be a kinsman. In other words, he had to be a man. He couldn't have come as an angel. In the form of an angel, the Lord Jesus could not have come in the form of any other kind of living creature. He had to be of the same tribe. He had to be 
like man. That's why he had to come in the likeness of man. So God, in his infinite mercy and wisdom and grace and love, told of his provision for a qualified kinsman redeemer for mankind immediately following man's forfeiture of tenant possession of earth to Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, when was the fall? I think it was in, is it in chapter 2? Beginning of 3, wherever. I mean, it's right there early in the Bible. But right away in Genesis chapter 3, 15, immediately after the fall of man, when man lost his tenant possession right of earth, God promised that the woman's seed, in other words, a human being, although a virgin-born human being, would bruise Satan's head. He would conquer Satan. He would give Satan a fatal blow. In other words, this one who would come from a woman's seed, you know women don't have seed, men do, so this speaks of a miraculous birth and yet a human birth, that this one would crush the usurper of mankind's inheritance. And we know, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, that Jesus Christ partook of mankind's flesh and blood, not, in, not the nature of an angelic creature or any other kind of creature, but of mankind's flesh and blood so that he might destroy who? So that he might destroy Satan. In Matthew 19, 28, we looked at that verse a couple weeks ago, the Lord Jesus himself talked about the regeneration of the future, which is another expression for the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is also called the regeneration. The word regeneration comes from two Greek words, compound word, and those two Greek words mean that that will be a time back to Genesis. That's literally what it means, back to Genesis, back to the beginning. So this is a reference to the time, the thousand-year kingdom, when the earth at long last will be redeemed from its curse. And it will return to the original state in which it existed before the fall. The Lord said that this time would occur when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory. And he purposely, when he said that, used the term for himself that tells us that he is the Son of who? Of man. He is of the right tribe in order to be mankind's kinsman redeemer. So when Christ returns to the earth after the seven years of tribulation and when he takes over the rule of the earth as kinsman redeemer, he is going to restore mankind's forfeited inheritance. The first Adam lost that inheritance, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the last Adam, will restore it. Now, another parallel to God's program of a kinsman redeemer for an Israelite and his program for a kinsman redeemer for the entire world is found in the redemption price. Remember, the kinsman redeemer, just like Jeremiah, had to pay a price to redeem the land. What was the price that the Lord Jesus Christ paid? Right, exactly. His price was his own, the shedding of his own precious blood. Ephesians 1, 7 and other places. And this, in fact, is what the 24 elders, and that's why I think they represent the church. This is what they sang about in praise in their new song that we'll study next week in Revelation 5, verse 9, when they say, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by what? By thy blood. That was the redemption price that our wonderful kinsman redeemer paid to get back tenant possession of earth. Now, similar to the fact that when an Israelite kinsman redeemer paid the redemption price to redeem his relative's lost inheritance, he did not return. Remember this? If he paid the price, he didn't return the administration of that land to his relative, but he used it instead for his own purposes. Like that, so also will Christ not return the administration of the earth back to man. As the kinsman redeemer who paid the price of redemption 
for the forfeited earth. He will keep the earth to administer it for God's purposes during the millennial kingdom. You know what the seventh angel says in Revelation 11, verse 15? The seventh angel makes this declaration. He says, or she, he says, yeah, angels are always he's in the Bible. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So you say, well, you mean mankind never gets earth back? Christ just, as the kinsman redeemer, takes it away from him? Well, you're forgetting one thing. Those people who, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, are one in him, are joint what with him? Joint heirs with him. Therefore, they will reign with him. Look at the last thing that those uh, 24 elders say in verse 10 of chapter 5. They say, and he has made us unto our God kings and priests, and what? We shall reign on the earth. Now, to conclude this comparison, I know your brains are probably getting tired. I'm almost done. To conclude this, we need to return to the sealed scroll of Revelation. And I'll wrap this all up. Revelation chapter 5. In light of all that we have just learned, we conclude that this most important document, this seven-sealed scroll, which the standing slain lamb stepped forward and took out of the right hand of God the Father in heaven, we conclude that this document is the deed of purchase for mankind's tenant possession or administration of earth. Just as the the scroll deeds of purchase were made when the prophet Jeremiah, you know, paid the redemptive price of silver for Hanamel's land, so also a scroll deed of purchase was made on the day that Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ paid the redemption price for mankind's tenant possession of the earth when he shed his blood on Calvary. That day, a document was made and sealed and put in a very, very secure place. I mean, you can't get much more secure than the right hand of God the Father. So this scroll, then, in the right hand of God the Father is the title deed to what? To planet Earth. It is the title deed to planet Earth. Christ's scroll deed is legal evidence of his payment of the redemption price, and therefore it is legal evidence of his right of tenant possession of the earth. Now remember, too, that one of Jeremiah's scroll deeds was sealed in order to prevent anyone from tampering with it. And that scroll served as irrefutable evidence should anyone ever question Jeremiah's legal right to the tenant possession of the land. Christ's scroll deed is even more secure, as I just said, than Jeremiah's was. Jeremiah had Baruch put it in a jar and bury it in the land. But of course, the Lord's deed, scroll deed to title earth, is even more secure because it wasn't just sealed once, it was sealed how many times? Seven times. And the number seven stands for perfection, completion. The seven seals on Christ's scroll make sure that it is completely secure from tampering and change. They are the guarantee that his scroll, that uh, that Christ's scroll deed is absolutely irrefutable evidence that he is indeed the kinsman redeemer who has the right to take possession of earth. Now, just as foreign usurpers or squatters controlled the land of Israel, Um, for many years when the Israelites were removed from it, just as that, Satan and all of his demonic forces and even human followers um, have usurped the earth in Christ's absence. 
So he will have to have not only he's already paid the redemption price, right? Remember, there are two requirements of the kinsman redeemer. He must pay the price and he also must what? It's the second thing. He must have the power and he will, he does have the power. That's what these angelic creatures and living creatures and the 24 elders will praise him about in this chapter that he does have the power. They use the same word power for Christ that they used for God. So don't ever think that the scripture doesn't teach the deity of Christ. He has exact same power that God has. And so he will use this power when? At his second coming. And it will be at that point in time that he will evict the enemy usurpers. It will be at that time that he will bring with him the rolled scroll, which he will have unsealed. When he breaks each seal on that scroll, that is what begins the judgments that we'll be reading about in chapter 6 all the way through 18. He does one seal at a time, and the judgments come. Out of the last seal come the seven trumpet judgments. Out of the seventh trumpet judgments come the seven vile or bowl judgments. When all of that is finished, and he has... um, gotten Israel to the point where she is ready to accept him as her kinsman, redeemer, and Lord and Savior, he will then return to the earth. He will have that title deed in his hand, as you see there. He will read it publicly so that all know that this is the irrefutable evidence that he is earth earth and mankind's rightful kinsman redeemer and then he will evict with his mighty power all the enemy usurpers forever and he will reign over earth as its rightful kinsman redeemer isn't it a beautiful beautiful story